0: Hello everyone, my name is Hera Azhar, I use she her pronouns, and I am a fourth year student at the University of Virginia studying Global Development Studies and Anthropology. A little bit about myself, I was born in Goethe, Pakistan, and then moved to the US at a pretty young age where I was raised in a really small town in Iowa, and then I attended high school and college in Virginia. So, this leaves me as both a product and survivor of colonial oppression. I want to begin this podcast by acknowledging my great privilege as a cishet person living in an imperialist nation, with access to the resources of such an oppressive empire built off of the labor of enslaved Black people and the genocide of Indigenous people. I also want to appreciate that my knowledge and understanding of the world comes from my identities as a Muslim, Pakistani, American woman. In this identity, I am inherently part of a diasporic community. Like many other South Asians living outside of our quote-unquote homeland, I understand that this is a great privilege. I also hope that throughout this series, we will be able to interrogate this identity more to understand the potential and power held within diasporic communities. So, as part of the South Asian diaspora in the U.S., I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding of South Asian American communities as being apolitical in nature. In reality, our communities are anything but apolitical. Arundhati Roy, an Indian writer and activist, has a great quote where she states, the moment of breath enters the body, it becomes political. We can look back at our ancestors, both in our respective homelands, but also in the U.S., and we can find these stories of resistance. For example, the Guther Party, which translates to Revolt Party, uh, which became a transnational movement of resistance against colonial Britain, and they even had their own The Guther newspaper. Or we can look to the New York Taxi Worker Alliance, which is an inherently political solidarity of working class immigrants, of which over 50% are South Asian, and we can look at their struggles against the establishment, particularly with the police. Although these organizations may not use the same language that we do today, it is clear that we have always been political, and we have always created communities to resist against the injustices we face. Thus, what I am asking of us today in building solidarities and continuing our fight against injustice is not too different. So, as we understand our history, I think it is also important to frame our work in our current positionality. We must remember that although we are a marginalized community with a deep history of violence and oppression, we've also been complacent and sometimes even perpetrators in the marginalization of other communities. This can be seen through the model minority myth present in contemporary America. The myth began in the civil rights movement as a way to, in Vijay Prashad's words, show up rebellious Black people for their attempts to redress power relations. Prashad addresses this relationship in his book, The Karma of Brown Folks, which follows the work of W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folks. In Du Bois's book, he raises the question, how does it feel to be a problem? In response, Prashad challenges us with the idea of how it feels to be a solution. He writes, and this is a super long quote, so bear with me. Obviously, it is easier to be seen as a solution than as a problem. We don't suffer genocidal poverty and incarceration rates in the United States, nor do we walk in fear and a fog of invisibility. To be both visible as a threat and invisible as a person is a strain disproportionately borne by Black America. This is not to say that we don't feel the edge of racism, both as a prejudice and as structural violence, but we do so in a far less stark sense than do those who are seen as the detritus of U.S. civilization. Nevertheless, to be a solution has its problems, too. When one is typecast as a success, one's ability ceases to be the measure of one's capacity. A young Asian child now, like a pet animal, performs his or her brilliance. Those Asians not gifted in technical arts see themselves as failures and suffer the consequences of not being able to rise to the levels expected of their genes. Jazz musicians, poets, carpenters, taxi drivers, homeless, many Indian American parents worry that their children will not inherit the values they themselves embody. When Michigan State University published a study in 1994 showing that second-generation Asian children have lower GPAs than new immigrants, it was reported as the Americanization of immigrant children. This study showed that the average U.S. GPA is 2.0, whereas immigrant children earn an average GPA of 2.58. This average GPA for second-generation children is 2.44, a fraction lower than that of immigrants. Confronted with such studies, we tend to forget that immigration and naturalization services is rigorous filtering of those who are not already furnished with the cultural capital for success. We tend to assume that the high averages have something to do with the immigrants' genetics or culture, in this sense as a noun, as a static, rather than something to do with the process of selection adopted by the U.S. state. But this is not the only thing that counts. We are not simply a solution for Black America, but most pointedly a weapon deployed against it the struggles of black people are met with the derisive response that asians don't complain they work hard as if to say that black people don't work hard the implication is that black people complain and ask for handouts after the historic civil rights act and in the context of the watts uprising of 1965 us news and world report ran a story on chinese americans who believe we are told in quote the old idea that people should depend on their own efforts, not a welfare check, in order to reach America's quote unquote promised land. End quote. This autonomous effort, the magazine argued, came at quote, a time when it was being proposed that hundreds of billions of dollars be spent to uplift Negroes and other minorities, end quote. as if to say protest is un American. So, whatever good social change emerged from the social struggles of the 1960s came as a result not of benevolence, but of the unyielding passion of the oppressed who fought to keep this racist polity even in iota honest. Look at the Asians, the black intelligentsia was told. They work hard without complaint. True, to some extent, but they don't seem to get very far either. Or else, the yearly reports of the glass ceiling must be concocted by those who complain too much and don't themselves work hard enough. Or else, the unrealized sentiment among South Asian Americans that they must retire in the homeland, away from a racist society, must just be a collective hallucination. A heart that beats to justice must murmur in this state. Jesse Helms addressed the Indian American Forum of Political Education in early September 1997. He said, and I quote, Indian Americans represent the best and the brightest the United States has to offer. You go to the finest hospital. You can go to the universities, you can go into businesses, and there they are, people from India. His praise was boundless. He continued to say, You understand the free enterprise system far better than a lot of people who were born and raised in this country. The language here is a code. I'm being told that I am good, not according to my own terms, but according to the terms upheld by Helms. The free enterprise is, after all, not so much an economic system as an ideological value system. The foes of this civilization, in Helms' view, are those in poverty, and in the main, the black and Latino working class. Both liberals and conservatives have entered a dreary theoretical and moral desert in which it is impossible to see the persistence of structural barriers to equality. In fact, the speaker could have just as well been Bill Clinton. That some people of color achieve appreciable levels of success, for whatever reason, is used as evidence that racism poses no barrier to success. We obsess on these stories of success not to praise the few that make it, some despite tremendous odds, but to argue that the rest fail of their own accord. In the midst of all this, the South Asian Americans provide a role model for success, and too many of us critically adopt that role without conscious reflection on the political and racial project to which it is hitched. In loving detail, I will try to offer the karma that has befallen my people as we wend our way in the United States, unaware of how we are used as a weapon by those whom we ourselves fear and yet emulate. This is our dilemma. Vijay Prashad makes it clear that in our role as South Asian Americans, we are directly used as a weapon against Black communities. We are part of a scarcity narrative in which we are told that there are limited resources that must go to the best and brightest communities, which are rarely ever labeled as the Black communities. We can see these narratives of anti-Blackness reflected within our own communities, even within our own houses. Therefore, it becomes even more important and necessary for us to politicize and resist. It becomes not just an option, but our duty as people with privilege and as people who have been weaponized against another community. So we must then tackle the very difficult work of building solidarity. Deepa Iyer, in her interview with the Drescher Center of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, is posed with the idea of multiracial solidarity and equity, to which she responds, Well, so
1: much of my work has been in the South Asian American community. And I ran an organization uh, called SALT, South Asian Americans Leading Together, which is a national nonprofit advocacy organization that speaks up on civil and immigrant issues facing South Asians here in the United States. South Asians happen to be actually the fastest growing ethnic group in the country. And I found during my work at SALT that it was so important for us to address the issues that our communities faced. So whether it was around immigration, or hate violence, or civil rights, but it was also important for us to build bridges with other communities of color and to understand that anything that affects other communities is also affecting us. So my interest in thinking about and understanding solidarity practice comes from that experience of how do we reach out and build bridges, how do we actually engage in transformative solidarity rather than transactional solidarity. And so I've been working on some projects and some ideas and learning from a lot of people around the country about how they actually engage in that work on a day-to-day basis and the long-term implications for what it means for equity and for justice in our country.
0: What I am particularly interested in is the buyer's question. How do we actually engage in transformative solidarity rather than transactional solidarity? I think it is important to begin this questioning with the reminder that this is nothing new to us. Black and South Asian solidarity in the U.S. has historically existed, particularly through the co-conspiring struggles of Black and Dalit liberation. Therefore, I think we can think about building this solidarity through an understanding that it has been done before, and that we have the frameworks and ideas created by our ancestors to work off of. Furthermore, I think we must also acknowledge that much of the work in creating this solidarity has also helped Asian folks more than it has helped Black folks. So, we must be critical, like IR states, of a transactional solidarity. I think this requires us to prioritize the knowledges, experiences, and stories of Black folks who have been doing this liberation work for generations. We must move within the space of solidarity building, learning from those that came before us, and understanding our position and privilege, both within that history and now. In a panel on Black and Asian solidarity in New York City, Romani Malik, the founder of DRUM, which is Desi's Rising Up and Moving Together, says,
2: A lot of the South Asians who are coming, I mentioned working-class South Asians, from uh, coming to do working-class jobs in New York City or the U.S., weren't necessarily working class people back home. Um, because in the migration world, uh, sort of global migration patterns, people who make it to migrating to the US or Canada or Europe or Australia are the more privileged classes of people. Poor people migrate within a country. So they're the migrant workers in within India right now, going from uh, villages to cities, or they migrate in their region or to other developing countries. So that's something to, that we understood over time, that organizers, we were making assumptions about a South Asian new migrant whose working class or undocumented. Many times it was new for them themselves to identify as a person of color, with racial justice issues, and with class struggles, because that's not necessarily what they were coming from back home. Um, added to that is a contradictions of internal racism, histories of casteism, colonial divide and conquer, communal violence uh, between castes, between religious communities, minority communities um, within our countries back home, um, and how that's replicated and brought here, um, and, uh, and sometimes an unwillingness to want to identify with uh, those on the lower end of the racial historical and institutional racism ladder in the U.S. Um, And so these were all things that really needed to be talked about openly rather than denied or or sort of covered over, glossed over. Um, So a lot of way to do that for us was political education that centered the history of race and racial segregation and the creation of U.S. uh, state by forced migration of African slaves and forced internal migration of indigenous people of Africans in understanding ourselves now as migrants. Um, And then also really pushing linkages between um, the new national security policies, war on terror and criminalization of Muslim and South Asian communities with what's already been there. And that wasn't always easy. It was a back and forth and a progress.
0: In this same panel, Lamumba Bundle, an organizer in the Malcolm X grassroots movement, stated.
3: Two initiatives that came out of the organizations that were doing some real solid organizing within a coalition against police brutality. And there are two things that happened. One, we recognize that solidarity is a verb, that it is not something that sits solely in an ideological or political education space that particular component is absolutely necessary. We were creating and we did create spaces for us to share ideology, to share experiences and talk about political context, political history. Um, But the opportunity and the experience of organizing side by side for years was where the magic happened. Where there was a disconnect is something that I don't think is exclusive to either Black or Asian communities, but it's a disconnect between movement spaces and grassroots people. So that did not translate back to Bed-Stuy. That did not translate back to Harlem. That did not translate back to the main uh, streets of of Brownsville, et cetera. So the self-criticism is that we needed to do a better job of allowing those political uh, exchanges and opportunities to inform uh, and better uh, I guess, amplify to, to our community so that we could really actualize a more realistic um, Black and Asian you know, kind of solidarity, even though we had a history of it for, for decades and we came out of it, everything from you know, the opposition to the war in Vietnam to Hua you Kang, know, all of these, we had a long history, but even within those, many of those particular moments did not translate to our people, our neighbors, our family members, actually being able to have and share some of those same experiences. So that was a self-critique.
0: In these thoughts, shared both by Malik and Bundle, I see this great hope and potential for solidarity amongst Black and South Asian communities. I love Malik's explanation of differences in immigration that influence how Black and Asian folks identify and move through spaces in the U.S. And I deeply believe in Bundle's sentiment that solidarity is a verb. As South Asian Americans, I think it is absolutely vital that we embody this and that we create spaces to have these messy and uncomfortable conversations around solidarity. It is through this very understanding and these experiences that I have transformed my own politics over the years. And in touching on those politics, I want to share an article titled South Asians for Abolition, Beyond Gilded Cages. The author, Mon M., writes, Incarceration is always a policy failure, because it is a consequence of an anti-Black, murderous, extractive political economy. Reforms like new jails are no more than gilded cages. As we continue this podcast, we will dive deeper into what abolition means, both in the American and South Asian contexts. But before we are able to do that, I think it is absolutely vital that we, as South Asian Americans, position ourselves as folks who are systemically less harmed by the anti-Black prison and policing systems in the U.S. Although ideas of abolition and transformative justice have existed in many of our communities back home, oftentimes not using the same language, we have much to learn from our Black comrades in the U.S. who have been doing the majority of this abolitionist work. This is not to say that we, as South Asians, are not discriminated against or harmed by the so-called justice institutions of the U.S., but that we are not victims of anti-blackness and therefore must use this privilege we have to dismantle the anti-black systems that we simultaneously benefit from. In the words of Mon M. again, fundamentally, South Asians in the U.S. must orient towards the dismantling of police, prisons, and other systems of entrapment and punishment as part of an anti-racist politic. While not calling the police is a great start, South Asians, particularly those in positions of caste, class, and religious privilege, can be better accomplices to all marginalized communities by challenging the networks of power, money, weapons, and training between rising fascist governments in India and the U.S., as well as Israel and the U.K., that leads to the murders of Black, Dalit, and Indigenous people here and beyond. Ending on this very powerful note, I hope you will tune in again to the next podcast in which we will really dive into abolition and what it means, both in the context of South Asia and the United States.